Hello again and welcome to Flowing Backwards, a podcast by me, Phil Peake, and the little man up in the hills. He's a bit of a hobbit, really, isn't he? Ian for Candles Moss. And this is the second part of Cockatoo. So it's Cockatoo 2. Hmm. Not a ballerina to be seen. Anyway, without any further ado, we will pass you over to him. So sit back, relax, make yourself a sandwich, pack it up Chris, couple of beers, and you'll be fine. Enjoy. Hello, this is me, the man from the hills, for yet another adventure in uh, Looneyland. This episode is called uh, Cockatoo 2. And it's a continuation of Cockatoo One. Okay, we were we're, we're in in the midst of uh, sickness, but before that, I'm going to read you the customary uh, verse. There you are. I didn't call it a poem. Hallelujah. This is actually uh, about. Um, I'm in a band called Four Candles at the moment, and Mark, the guitar player, told me this story about his um, insane auntie who had a vendetta against the next door, next door neighbours. And for 30 years, she played a radio non-stop against their bedroom wall. Uh, eventually, I think she went deaf and, and finally gave up. And, and it left no impact at all on neighbours. Anyway, this is, uh, this is uh, about that. It's called Radio War. Okay. Not getting on with the neighbours despising those people next door, withdrawing any offers of favours, draft a declaration of war, cutting the nose, spiting the face, and taking it to extremes, determined to stop them sleeping and make nightmares of their dreams. Radio warfare, radio war, turn it louder than ever before. Radio warfare, leave them in tears. Radio warfare for 30 years. That's radio noise. Harboring a grudge for decades, wireless facing the bedroom wall, playing the rock and roll station without a break at all. 60 minutes of the hour, 24 hours per day, for 1,560 weeks, the radio on constant play. Radio warfare, radio war, turn up the volume, louder than before, non-stop noise, spoils the peace they had, but it drives me completely mad. A supply of batteries close at hand, through the days and nights, decades are spanned, musical fashions, overtime change, but the ear bashing remains the same. Radio warfare, radio war, louder, louder than before, a, a torture technique for 30 years, and then find the enemy never could hear. Okay, that's that. Um, all right, back onto the serious business. So, um, I'm sort of um, falling out with um, with my band. They don't like um, they don't like my gay songs, um, and and they're demanding that I stop writing gay songs. Um, I'm trying to get them to indulge 
in the local music scene and and get ahead uh, but they think a trip to the evening news arena to see Ian Brown because he's from Manchester constitutes as what's happening in the local music scene and then also um, the lump like uh, some evil cuckoo um, is muscling the, uh, the more fragile little chicks in the band about and um, securing his position as as um, top top um, top cuckoo, I suppose. Um, anyway, um, what what they start insisting on is that we rehearse. They don't want to write new material. They say that it's all everything's too ramshackle, and they want us to rehearse the old material over and over and over again some of this material bear in mind is five years old you know they want me to sing songs that i've sung a thousand times before again and again and again in rehearsal because they think it will make them better and i insist it will not it will simply suck any residual joy that's left in them out of them and I will end up in a lunatic asylum. I refuse to do it. And uh, we, we have this standoff where eventually uh, I counter their demands by refusing to rehearse at all unless we write new material. So basically the band goes into a stasis for 12 months. We probably play three or four gigs without rehearsals during that time. And... Um, TK Maxx, uh, the wizard guitar player who likes Frank Zappa, has had enough of all this. He's always sort of uh, been uh, betwixt the two camps, myself and the rest of them, um, and, and he simply has enough and, and leaves. We're in this, this stasis where nothing is happening, and, and then um, the lump, who is a melodramatic um, creature, at the best of times, um, feigns a suicide attempt, um, which we take very seriously at the time. Um, the reason he feigns this suicide attempt is he's having marital difficulties and um, he has um, committed a violent assault against his wife. And um, he now, in, in fear, I suppose, of, uh, of the police, and of being seen as a monster, because that is not the way he views himself, he, he fakes this suicide attempt to attract sympathy towards him. Um, and it works. I am, uh, I am totally uh, sold on, on this vision of this poor man who has been wronged by his evil wife, who has been driven uh, to this suicide attempt, I uh, visit him in hospital, although it's noticeable that they're not actually treating him. He just seems to be lying there, taking a bed up. Um, and, and, and there is uh, one afternoon where I sit and, uh, and I take along with me um, the uh, Kenneth Graham's book, The Wind in the Willows, and I read him the, uh, the full chapter, uh, The Piper at the Gates of Dawn, which, which is such a beautiful piece of writing, you know. And it's all very touching and lovely, um, but you don't half feel a chump when uh, when the truth of the situation is pointed out to you uh, years later. You know that it was all fake. Um, 
So anyway, to to um, to cheer the lump up while we're in this sympathetic mode, um, we fetch the band back together and um, and start playing some some gigs and writing some songs. Um, and so at this point, I'll play you something by the band that we've been talking about, something by Sick Nurse. So this is called My Life is Rated X. Soul, 
I'm drilling my own hole. The song that you've just heard there, although it may sound like some kind of hedonistic anthem, uh, was actually the the opposite, and it was written in part about a uh, a guy I'd met in from London, um, and, I, and I met him in London as well as in Manchester as well, um, who um, had a troubled kind kind of life. He's only only young, and um, he, he told me the the way that he would lose himself um, from the situation that he was in was by throwing himself onto a dance floor and he would get lost in the music and and the dance and and that was largely what the song um, was referring to. Uh, he was called Andrew. He was a very very nice person, a very special person, and um, I'd been DJing um, one night in a. A, a club in Didsbury, uh, Didsbury, Didsbury, Didsbury. Um, uh, this, the, the, where they were engaging in this concept of um, suburban, suburban clubbing. Uh, it was called Out of the Range. This club night um, for kind of older hipsters. Um, and they let me DJ a few times. They stopped me after a while because um, they play were sort of playing predominantly. Um, rare groove dancey things and i was playing cabaret voltaire and throbbing gristle uh, but anyway um i've been djing this this night and um i was about to throw myself into um the hedonism of um, manchester's night scene after the djing stint but my friend pete who was one of the djs there insisted that this sort of thing was no good for me and then I come back to his house and I went back to his house and there's a bit of a nice party and it was nice company and I was very grateful for him for inviting me along and it was a really nice night and I remember uh, waking up on the morning and stepping out and it was all tree lined this road and uh, that lovely early crisp early morning feeling with leaves on the ground and the sun coming down. And uh, I got myself home and I turned on the computer to see what was happening. And uh, I found that Andrew uh, had died a week after his 21st birthday. He died of a drug overdose. And it, it was it was absolutely horrific. And this was only a few months after Steve had died. There's there two massive jolts uh, to me. And... Um, we we began playing live again, the band, and I was I found myself playing um, some songs that Stephen had written in in tribute to 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 him and memorial to him. And then there was a couple of songs, the one obviously I've just mentioned, and another one that were written in large part about Andrew. 
and it became a, a very complex thing in my mind. It was very emotional. Um, I was walking a, a fine line with, with my own sanity because I was um, I was on stage with ghosts. Um, it was it, I've, I've referred to to this um, in in song and to people try to describe it. And going on the stage was a psychic battlefield for me. It was uh, it was it was quite harrowing. And now uh, we would play gigs, and I would. Um, sort of land home somehow afterwards, usually in the company of a, of, a, of a younger friend who was a huge help to me at the time. And he would run me a bath and I would get in the bath and he'd pour me um, a glass of wine or a glass of scotch or something. And I'd sit there and try and come down and try and make sense of, uh, of my feelings. Um, but I was very, very um, raw indeed anyway um everything seemed to be go going okay and uh, we went in the studio with with ding once more and recorded some uh, tracks and um pressed them up to go on to um a, a, onto a cd that we could sell at, at gigs and i was very keen to get this out and the money wasn't available and um, I ended up somewhere around four or five hundred pounds out of pocket uh, for for this. I mentioned this because uh, years later um, I was accused by the lump of um, profiting from his work in sickness, which was a, a ludicrous uh, accusation. Um, so we get these CDs. Uh, pressed up. I've, I've paid for the CDs and the sleeves and the mixing um, and immediately the band begins to collapse. Uh, first Black Horse um, leaves, then Jim, the drummer, leaves and then um, John doesn't quite leave but um, refuses to play the gigs that, um, that we've got booked. We've got two gigs uh, on one night, both good gigs, um, one at, at Gulliver's in the centre of Manchester and one in Salford, one of Tony Thornberry's Hel Helmets for Men gigs, uh, because all the, the DJs from around Salford had uh, come in and given us a helping hand, Stephen Doyle and Bob Osborne and uh, John Montague and Tony Thornborough were all playing our stuff on the radio. All of a sudden, we were making some headway, and just at that moment, the band imploded. Um, the day of these gigs, I was in the studio with Ding, not for, um, for any sickness thing, but my friend Craig Scanlon um, had written some songs and asked me to go in and, uh, and do some singing for him. There was Craig, um, myself, uh, Julian, my friend, sang some, thing and uh the rhythm section was steve and paul hanley from from the fall it was one of those beam me up moments and we were doing one of craig's songs um which was really good um we did uh this thing called howl and scream i remember that and i might i'm going to sing you uh, uh the opening verse it went uh from classics in the attic 
to the end of the line. You took a trip and saw the world and you left everything behind. But it was not what you expected. It was not what you expected. And a snail trail begins from the line on the fridge. Wave a transparent hand. It is RV design, Lintz. You are running out of places, running out of places. It is not what you expected, not what you expected. Howl and scream, howl and scream, howl and scream, howl and scream, and so on. It was about somebody he'd been uh, in a pop group with. Um, so I went and did that, and then there's, there's these two gigs. And there's only the lump and I left. Um, and, and, and obviously, I'm very pleased um, that the lump has shown such admirable, admirable loyalty to me. Um, in the fullness of time, I realized he'd simply hedged his bets and thought I was the best option. Um, but off we went to, um, to Gulliver's, and it was a good crowd in Gulliver's. It was a benefit for the Strummer Camp Festival. And we played as a two-piece. And um, and it was well received. And then straight away, we uh, jumped into the car and went over to Salford. And it was packed. It was uh, Tony Thornborough's birthday for this helmet to men for for men gig. And um, we added um, a an extravagant fellow called uh, Tosca Wild um, to to uh, appear with us on stage. And we set him up, mic'd him up, and uh, he loudly uh, painted his nails while we performed. Um, and it was uh, broadcast live on some digital radio station, which was hilarious because I was full of anger that this band, and my band had fallen to pieces. And I was uh, rather potty-mouthed. And between every single song that we performed, they issued an apology on the radio station and, and hoped that the next one um, would be uh, less profane. Uh, it wasn't. Anyway, uh, that was the end of sickness. Um, Mike Lee, who uh, had years before, as, as we've said, had wanted me to be in a cabaret band with him and later joined the fall, uh, was there and was very, very fulsome in his praise. And I said to him, you know, uh, well, this has obviously fallen to pieces at some point. You know, would you care to, to do something? He said, oh, please, 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 please. He sounded like James Brown. Please, please. Uh, not the funkiest man, Mike. So so that's a quite amazing uh, transformation. Um, anyway, I think, what should we do? Yes, I remember my favourite song at the time, and uh, and this is and, and I've not really said how angry I was and how disappointed I was at this collapse of, of uh, sickness. But I was angry and and but more disappointed. Anyway, uh, the song that soundtracked my emotions at the time was uh, by a Belgian group called Kiss the Anus of the Black Cat, and it's called You Will Reap the Whirlwind. And I think we should hear it.
horizon, the sky is grey, and you will reap a whirlwind. Not a bird, or else you're dead. You will reap a whirlwind. The poet is dead, the missionary.
so socially, at the time, I'm um, spending a lot of time with, with, with Craig Scanlon mostly. We, we become very tight and um, most Saturday afternoons we would um, meet up and have a few drinks and then um, go and watch um, a film at the Corner House Cinema and then have a few drinks afterwards and 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 drift drift off home at, at, at that point. And it was all lovely and civilised and we saw a lot of good films. I remember us going to see um, the film Catching um, about the um, notorious uh, execution of basically of all the the Polish army officers uh, by by the Russians and who then blamed the Nazis for it. Um, and uh, the the discovery of the bodies kind of years later. And as you can imagine, that's not light subject matter. And um, it's absolutely harrowing, in fact. And we, we went into the cinema, uh, I think, for something like the six o'clock on a Saturday, you know, late Saturday afternoon showing. And, and we watched this film and every, as the film ended, there's just silence and, and this sort of gloom all over us where everybody in the place is horror struck at man's humanity to man. And the doors open and as we're filing out, there's a lovely Saturday night audience for a nice evening in the, in the cinema, all smiling and, and uh, dressed in the finery. You know, I remember thinking, you won't have those fucking smiles on your face after you've seen this. Um, oh, I also remember uh, that um, around that period, and, and Craig wasn't with me, I went on my own. There was a 12-hour marathon at the corner house of uh, Andy Warhol's films. And um, I had, I simply had to go. And... Um, I went along and I prepared. I'd got um, a very occasional um, flutter and, and got some amphetamine and I got some vodka and, uh, and a packet of crisps, probably. And, and I went, and there's perhaps about 50 people in for, for this session of Warhol's films, you know. And, it, it, and, and it's, it's, it's grueling. 12 hours of, uh, of sort of Andy Warhol's uh, lo fi film footage, you know, of people being asleep and things. Uh, it's hard work. Um, anyway, I, rem I got, got through it, but I remember the lights coming up and there were perhaps about a dozen of us left and everywhere there was debris. It looked like um, the aftermath of the Vietnam War or something, you know, and we were all ragged and bleary-eyed and horrible. Um, I love the corner house. It doesn't sound like it, does it? <laughs> um, so, yes, right. Um, and then, um, oh dear, around again, somewhere around this time, uh, you know, this is not completely chronological uh, because I've, I've sort of, uh, it becomes a blur, doesn't it, life? And um, I went to Stockholm. And uh, on my own, and uh, it was a huge shock to the system. Um, 
I knew it was going to be expensive, but I wasn't prepared for quite how expensive. So my plane landed, and um, I thought the easiest thing to do was to get a taxi to my hotel, which couldn't be far, and indeed wasn't far. It was perhaps a mile and a half, and uh, the taxi fare was over forty pounds. I thought, wow, you know. And I remember looking uh, at the possibility of, of buying a breakfast, you know. And it was kind of 15 to 20 quid. You know, this is a long time ago. A beer was nine and 10 pounds. And it's depressing because you haven't got, you know, we don't earn that, that sort of money to, to be free in, in that sense. We're, we're constrained by our lack of money when we're thrown into these situations. I was on my own and the hotel room that I got was some weird modern uh, hotel and um and basically my room was was a cupboard you know there was no light in it there was no window it it was it was a bed with a, a narrow strip uh to the wall from the bed and a uh television monitor facing angled face and that was it it was you know it, so you couldn't the possibility of, of of spending a casual hour in your room reading or something you know it was it was not it was not good um it was very depressing um and, and you understand you know why there's so much uh, melancholia in uh, scandinavian films and music and stuff you know no wonder um anyway it, it started getting to me and there was a, a day where i was wandering sort of aimlessly because it's not the most beautiful city either and um, I was just wandering aimlessly and a bus stopped. So because I've got nothing better to do, I got on the bus and it went round and round. And, and before I knew it, I'd been around the city perhaps 10 times. I'd been on the bus around three hours and um, the, the driver must have noticed how people sort of pointing at me, you know, this strange... Um, sullen man and the driver stopped his bus it was it was it was very pleasant he came to inquire on my welfare you know and he, and he said to me are you okay and i just panicked and fled from the bus and and that um should have been a warning sign that i needed to kind of get my head together but and anyway the next day i thought fuck it I'm just going to have a splurge, and uh, I, I had, a, I went out and and went round a few bars, and I had a drink and got quite, you know, sort of quite intoxicated. And as I arrived back at the hotel, it was probably about two a.m., and the bar was still open. There was one person in the bar who was this uh, fellow in his thirties, sort of casually smart dressed, and uh, he said, "Would you care to join me?" And, uh, and I said, yeah, sure. And, and he bought me a drink and we started uh, speaking to one another. And it is the way of strangers that you can unburden yourself to a stranger because you're not going to see them again. You know, you can tell truths uh, to people who you don't know that you may well keep private from your closest friends. So I was telling him about my life. Uh, but it, my life was nothing compared to his because he uh, he claimed and have no reason to doubt him absolutely whatsoever 
that he was a uh, hitman. He was a sleeper. He was Finnish and he was based in Scandinavia in, uh, in Stockholm um, for, for when he was useful. And he led a very unobtrusive life. He had a little car, he had a girlfriend and a dog. And the reason he drank in this hotel bar was because he didn't want to make friends. He didn't go in the local bars where people talk to him. He was in this place because it was a, it's very nature, because it's transient. Um, so it was it was quite odd. At one point, he uh, I remember him him say, saying to me, um, "I could cut your throat before you even moved." And uh, I smiled at him and said, "But why would you do that?" Anyway, uh, it all got weird over the course of a few drinks, and uh, and before I knew it, he'd got his um, his tongue down my throat, kissing me passionately. Um, Fortunately, it didn't go any further than that. I don't know what I'd have done. I'd woke up with a with a Finnish hitman in bed with me. Um, anyway, it, that was it was it was furthest kind of freakery, uh, if you if you know what I mean. And so the next morning, I decided to clear my head and I got a train and went to um, the university district, which is very beautiful and there's a huge man-made lake and uh, trees and uh, there was lots of wild life running about. Uh, I saw a beaver. I'd never seen a live beaver before. You know, it was beautiful, and birds were singing. And I'd got um, I'd got a Walkman thing playing playing music, and um, and I was okay. And 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 then, as I've said before, the, the trouble with mental illness is is you just flip for no apparent reason. I remember a track by uh, my brother's band came on and I, and I think that was the trigger. I think I was. it made me sad that my brother and I, at that point, didn't have the relationship that we should have. We weren't, we weren't particularly close and, and, uh, and that was a cause of some regret. I think that was the trigger. It, it might have been, it might not have been. But um, what I, I then did, um, was I, I climbed over the fence, uh, which was somewhere behind me, onto the railway track and um, put the Walkman on, on my head, playing it really loud. And I decided to play a kind of game of Russian roulette with the trains and uh, to walk up the track. And um, if a train came, I wasn't moving for it. It could take me. Uh, but if I got to the next station, I would come off the track, I'd climb out. So I walked up the track and, you know, I arrived at the station, much to the astonishment um, of the people on the platform and and, and climbed off. But it's, um, my state of mind wasn't good. Um, I suppose that's what I'm saying. And and all this is about being uh, honest, all, all, this, uh, all these podcasts. So that it's, I'm just letting you know where uh, where my head was at, basically. Um, good God, good God, good. Right, um, I'll play you some music just to, just to, just while I get my head together to that. Um, this is this is something I was listening to a lot, um, and it it was kind of um, it was informing me. 
musically, although I couldn't play stuff like this, um, it was what I was interested in. And I wasn't interested in, in playing, you know, sort of verse, chorus, verse, chorus, middle, late verse, chorus, any, any more particularly. I wanted to do something differently. Um, anyway, this is Madlib, Beat Conductor, and it's called Gamble on Your Boy. Good to be back. <clears throat> and y'all don't believe, y'all don't believe this tonight. See, What's everybody think Hollywood is what you read and hear about, but it's drag. It's rough out there. But see, you got a lot of phonies out there. Hey, roll that everybody up, man. Everybody wants to get stalled. I don't roll snake guys, I don't roll with fake dudes, I don't roll with fake guys Gamble on your boy, it's a sure shot bet, I'm the best of the vets, I'm the best in the west Give me them dice, I don't roll snake guys, I don't roll with fake dudes, I don't roll with fake guys Gamble on your boy, it's a sure shot bet, I'm the best of the vets, I'm the best in the west The far I hate rude nickname, Arnie Morton in a seal gray portion, the Gucci bucket sporting Vintage beach glasses looking like $200, hey I'm ghetto swap meat but a well known scholar King told me cousin and just let the top drop this summer when it's hot hey we both gon' squat holla 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 like that dude on Chappelle and no time no error has the far I ever fell off like a light switch in the down position I be spitting I be shitting any beat I be pissing on I just devastate the jaw piece of a hater I can feed your horse mouth cause I got a haymaker I walk through the street like a tiger in the jungle keep all loose chains but preferred type bundles of cash that could fill up the Sepulveda tunnel OD from a keg from a 40 or a funnel give me them I don't roll snake guys, I don't roll with fake dudes, I don't roll with fake guys. Gamble on your boy, it's a sure shot bet. I'm the best of the vets, I'm the best in the West. Give me them dice, I don't roll snake guys, I don't roll with fake dudes, I don't roll with fake guys. Gamble on your boy, it's a sure shot bet. I'm the best of the vets, I'm the best in the West. The far I hate rule nickname that turner on probation had to get rid of the fat burner. But believe when I'm off, I'ma get him, then I got him. I can jump at a jump with a life threatening problem. Mr. Defoe. All right, nickname Thoroughbred. Tell a chick, take a time, give me Thoroughhead. I blaze any stage, any crowd, I amaze. I'm a star, so in the sky, don't have to gaze. Love being free, fuck counting the days. So brother to the grave, Frankie Beverly and Maze. I roll with the black like sharks rolling packs, but I don't roll with cats that try to hold us back. Many, many flights, many tours, many nights. Still never drank cool, still never snort white. Nope. I check cheese, cheese don't check me. I'm a motherfucking G for the G's, ass Kiwi. Give me them. Dice, I don't roll snake guys, I don't roll with fake dudes, I don't roll with fake guys. Gamble on your boy, it's a sure shot bet. I'm the best of the vets, I'm the best in the West. Give me them dice, I don't roll snake guys, I don't roll with fake dudes, I don't roll with fake guys. Gamble on your boy, it's a sure shot bet. I'm the best of the vets, I'm the best in the West. Yup. So this is what y'all wanted, huh? That liquid shit, huh? That liquid. Shit, huh? Mad Liz. Your boy DeFarrah. Liquid crew from the cradle to the grave. Yeah. I'm talking about. Big shots to all dilated people's crew. Expansion team sound system. Liquid junkies crew. Hey, Swift. Yeah, boy. That's what I'm talking about. Liquid forever, my nigga. Yeah, that.
in uh, in the interim between uh, the demise of sick nurse and um, whatever I was going to do next, because the idea wasn't percolated and wasn't fully formed at this stage, um, I resurrected the hamsters once more. Steve obviously is dead. I suppose that was in, in part of it was to play some of Steve's songs with with Bob and invited John to do it, and he didn't want to do it. He was still um, kind of bruised by me calling him names for for wimping out on uh, on the sickness thing. Um, so um, we um, the lump and his uh, fourteen year old son. Uh, joined us and um and and bobby's cousin craig who um couldn't drum so he's perfect for the hamsters joined as drummer um and um we, bobby and i wrote a few songs and we resurrected some of the old ones and we did a couple of radio sessions we did steve dial's sonic diary somewhere on internet land um that exists as a free download and we did um Little Red's radio show, Rick O'Neill, um, and we played, um, and we played some some gigs. Some uh, well, we only played. What did we play? Four gigs, I think we played. Uh, one of them, Mike Lee sat in and drummed with us, and um, and then um, I decided what I was I was going to do. I got some money from the Final Sickness shows. And I booked some a day studio time with uh, with Ding in his studio, and took um, the lump in with me, and Craig Scanlon came in with me, and we recorded um, three songs um, that that were interesting, that were, that were good. One of Craig's and and two of mine, um, and Bobby came along. And was clearly unhappy because he felt that um, I should have been doing the hamsters stuff. We'd put this time into the hamsters, and he was very, very upset. Uh, in fact, he wasn't very upset. He was absolutely fucking furious, um, and it caused a schism. So, where I could apologise for his feelings being hurt, and I could understand it some, to some point. I couldn't apologise for doing um, this proto um, proto kill pretty, which is what it was, because I told him from the start that I intended to do to do this thing, and I'd promised the lump because he'd been um, loyal in, on the sickness gigs that I was going to do this thing, with, and he would he could be involved. Um, so it created um, created some bad blood briefly between Bobby and I. Anyway, we we patched it up because our friendship is stronger than uh, than that, and we decided that we would play a, a final hamsters show, and then for the sake of our friendship, uh, we would we would wrap it up, um, and and that kind of suited me because I was ready to move on anyway. So um, so we played a gig at the Crescent in Salford. And uh, and that was the end of Hamsters Mark four or five, whatever it was. Um, so I um, I'd got the this idea that I wanted to do something sort of a bit freer 
that um, than than I'd done before. So um, I was going to call it uh, Kill City after the song and the album by Iggy Pop and James Williamson, uh, but it was pointed out to me that living in Manchester. Uh, um, some football supporters, even though they're few in number, um, might take offence at it, um, and, and so decided to call uh, call it "Kill Pretty." I remember. I do digress, don't I? Um, around this time, Mick Upton also got in touch with me after an absence of, of perhaps a decade since I'd upset him by uh, throwing trifle or whatever it was over his his guests in uh, in. In, in Barker um, um, and he got in touch with me and, and asked me to um, to go along to a gig he was playing fronting the reconfigurated faces who Rod Stewart had declined to join apparently the notoriously mean Rod wanted two shares, he wanted um, the deceased Ronnie Lane's share as well as his own um, so Mick Hucknall um, was singing with the faces and they were playing this um, this festival in Chichester uh, called the Vintage Festival. Um, the Whalers were also on the bill, I remember. And I thought it was it was nice of him to ask me along. And all of a sudden, you know, I wanted to kind of bury the hatchet and, you know, I'm fed up of confrontations um and so so i went to went to chichester to see mick Ocknall singing with uh, the faces and he was he you know it's the faces great songs they can sing but he you know he's not he's not right for the faces he sort of all the sings i'd have been better with the faces because with faces songs you need you don't need to be a great singer you need to be um somebody not afraid to kind of spit it out and shout it out you know um anyway he puts any too many walls and all that sort of rubbish you know um which you know good anyway i went along and i remember <coughs> uh, he introduced me to uh, the band after i had a lovely chat with kenny jones who i liked a lot we we're talking about the twisted wheel um ian mcglagan was away with the fairies um Glenn Matlock from Sex Pistols was playing bass, who I managed to uh, irritate. I've managed to do that every time I've ever met Glenn Matlock. Um, and uh, I was speaking to Ronnie Ward, who again is um, it's a little bit away with the fairies, is, is Ronnie. But I remember, I remember t telling, telling him, he, he was the first person, uh, he said, what are you doing? I said, I've got a band. And he said, what's it called? And I said, Kill Pretty. So he was the first other person he knew that I'd got a band called Kill Pretty. He didn't ask to join. Um, anyway, so I put the band um, together. The idea was that it could shift a little bit and it wouldn't be taken too seriously. So I've got um, Lump on rhythm guitar. I've got TK Matt on, uh, on sort of twiddly guitar. I've got um, the Lump son, Josh, on, uh, on on bass guitar and i've got um mike lee on on the drums and with, there's a couple of hamsters gigs left over which gives us a um a target to aim for to get a set together and and play you know with perhaps about six weeks uh, before the first of these gigs and, and we 
Oh, go swimmingly. We write easily and we resurrect some some of the old songs that I've done in the past, and and, it, and it's good. And the first gig we've got is, is a good one with um, uh, supporting Vic Goddard and the Subway Set. Um, and two days before the gig, uh, TK Maxx has a crisis of confidence and says, "I can't play. I can't play. I can't face the public." Again, fair play to the lump. Uh, he um, he steps up to the plate, you know, and he's not great technical guitar player. Uh, it's not his instrument of choice, um, but he um, he's inventive enough to make a, an interesting noise. And, and we play with Subway Set, and it's really really good. And um, Vic Goddard, who I've admired for years and years, thinks we're great, and the band. Think we're great and it's lovely and 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 I developed something of a friendship with with Vic and 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 his sect, um, which is very nice. Um, and then um, two weeks later, we're in London. Uh, another old friend of mine, um, Mark from from the Mob, has put together this kind of uh, anarcho-punk jamboree in in Brixton. You know, and it's sort of a who's who of anarcho-ness. Um, so there's uh, the mob and Zounds and, um, oh God, the astronauts, Andy T, and lots of people affiliated, Rubella Ballet, yeah, and people. Anyway, um, and, and we're on that, although, you know, I'm a kind of anarchic, uh, rather than our co, I suppose. Um, anyway, we go and, and look to play, play in London. There's lots of people, and we play, and uh, and it's smashing, and it's it's lovely. And Mark and, and everybody really likes us, and they give us a lot of money, uh, which arms us to do recordings and things. Uh, so that's really good. And, and and what we find is before we, you know, in our infancy we're already being talked about and um, there is momentum and momentum's a wonderful thing when you have it behind you, you know, and um, and it was all sort of uh, very, very nice. Um, so we um, we just sort of uh, went on and on and on and on. A guy called Steve Dobson got in touch with me um, through MySpace, if you remember MySpace. And uh, he explained to me that he had seen me singing with the hamsters in London years and years before when he was 16 years old. And, and he thought um, that the hamsters were wonderful and he'd been too shy and, and, and too afraid. <laughs> he wasn't shy. What he said was he was too afraid. We looked too menacing, talked too violent uh, to speak to. Uh, so, so now that he's older, he felt confident to speak to me, and uh, we struck up a, a, a friendship. And he was very nice to me. He took all these uh, scraps of music that I'd got on cassettes and digitalized for me, and, and, and sent me these CDs of them. And uh, that was really, really nice. And I never imagined that you could do that sort of thing because I am uh, technically lacking. Um, yeah hopeless with any technology um i uh i said to he lives on um 
He lives in Broadstairs in Kent. Um, I wasn't going to go to Broadstairs because that's quite difficult. But I said to him, you know, would you care to meet me? I'll come to London and meet you in London one Saturday tea time, you know, and we can go and have a drink and a chat. And and so we did that. We went to London, we had a few drinks, and we went for a meal. And at, at some point in uh, in the evening, he proposed to me. He said, you've got this amazing life. Can I write your biography? And I sort of laughed and said, are you mad? <laughs> you know, uh, who, who would buy that? Anyway, he was quite insistent that he wanted to do it. And explained that his, uh, his husband um, was ill with cancer and it would it would be great therapy for him. It would give him something to do. And, and obviously I'm very flattered that somebody wanted to write a book about me. So I ceded to, to that. And, uh, and Steve wrote a book uh, about me um, called The Man Who Killed the Hamsters, uh, which was um, the title of a painting Steve never finished uh, before he was dying. He'd, he'd never let go of of my uh what he he saw as my betrayal walking out on on the hamsters that's a, that's about it um so i'm going to play you out with um a track by fat truckers called um uh, anorexic robot uh not for any particular reason it's just that they had the spirit that I was after with this early uh, version of Kill Pretty. So here you are, the fat truckers from Sheffield, anorexic robot. Error, error, you must reboot. 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 Error, error, you must reboot.
enjoyed that episode i know it's more concise than some have been recently i made a deliberate effort um this evening um so i'll not ramble on and on and miss my outro i hope you enjoyed the fact because i'd love to see hearing that again um thank you to phil the lovely phil his lovely um wispy hair is falling out um even though he's fighting against it um Thank you to Helen for letting Phil do this. Helen's hand, conversely, has grown ever so long in this lockdown. I've seen her on a video screen tonight, and, and it's not as vividly red as it was. It's kind of pink. Um, disconcerting, that, isn't it? Um, thank you for listening. As we keep saying, spread the news. Tell people to listen. If you find this interesting, or educational, God forbid, um, Tell people, uh, get in touch with us, speak to us. Um, it's all about communicating, um, and we're always happy to to hear from people. So, um, at this point, I will love you and leave you. As always, stay safe, and we really do love you. Love you, brothers and sisters. Bye-bye, everybody. Thank you very much for that, Ian. And... Thanks for listening to yet another wonderful episode of Flowing Backwards. Um, 
we shall have another episode next week but in the meantime remember Facebook flow backwards there's a message on there the website will be down for a week as I'm updating it and putting some stuff on it so little old me will say goodbye to little old me and stay safe